I'm Chris Hale, and welcome to another episode of the DadCast, a podcast that provides read-alouds of scholarly articles, short fiction, and sometimes even poetry to help a university student find a little balance and support. The coffee mug is filled, breakfast cake is served, and the dogs have been walked. Let's get ready for another episode of the DadCast. Hello, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 12 of the DadCast. Today we begin selected readings from David Crystal's text, The Cambridge Encyclopedia of the English Language, as we begin our study and evolution of the English language. Enjoy. Chapter 1, Modeling English. An essential early step in the study of a language is to model it. A model in this context is not a three-dimensional miniature replica. This book does not devote its space to techniques of molding the English language in Plato, Meccano, or Lego. To model the English language is rather to provide an abstract representation of its central characteristics so that it becomes easier to see how it is structured and used. Two models provide this first perspective. The first breaks the structure of English down into a series of components, and these will be used to organize the exposition throughout parts two to four. There is also a model of the uses of English, and this will be used as a perspective for parts one and five. The omnicurious eye of the English linguist surveys the whole scene in ways in which are examined in part six. The structure model sees English in three key areas, event, core, and transmission. Event is made up of text, a coherent, self-contained unit of discourse. Texts which may be spoken, written, computer-mediated, or signed vary greatly in size, from such tiny units as posters, captions, emails, and bus tickets, to larger units as novels, sermons, web pages, and conversations. They provide the frame of reference within which grammatical, lexical, and other features of English can be identified and interpreted. Transmission includes sign, graphology, and phonology. Sign, a visual language used chiefly by people who are deaf, This book refers only to those signing systems which have been devised to represent aspects of English structure, such as its spelling, grammar, or vocabulary. Graphology. The writing system of a language. Graphological or orthographic study has two main aspects. The visual segments of the written language, which take the form of vowels, consonants, punctuation marks, and certain typographical features and the various patterns of a graphic design, such as spacing and layout, which adds structure and meaning to stretches of written text. Phonology, the pronunciation system of a language. Phonological study has two main aspects, the sound segments, which take the form of vowels and consonants, and the various patterns of intonation, rhythm, and tone of voice which adds structure and meaning to stretches of speech. The core segment includes lexicon and grammar. Lexicon is the vocabulary of a language. 
lexical study, is a wide-ranging domain involving such diverse areas as the sense relationships between words, the use of abbreviations, puns and euphemisms, and the compilation of dictionaries. Grammar is the system of rules governing the construction of sentences. Grammatical study is usually divided into two main aspects, syntax, or dealing with the structure and connection of sentences, and morphology, the dealing with structure and formation of words. The use model involves social variation, personal variation, regional variation, and temporal variation. Social variation. A society affects a language in the sense that any important aspect of social structure and function is likely to have a distinct linguistic counterpart. People belong to different social classes, perform different social roles, use different technologies, and carry on different occupations. Their use of language is affected by their sex, age, ethnic group, and educational background. English is being increasingly affected by all these factors because its developing role as a world language is bringing it more and more into contact with new cultures and social systems. Personal variation. People affect the language in the sense that an individual's conscious or unconscious choices and preferences can result in a distinctive or even unique style. Such variations in self-expression are most noticeable in those areas of language where great care is being taken, such as in literature and humor. But the uniqueness of individuals arising out of differences in their memory, personality, intelligence, social background, and personal experience make distinctiveness of style inevitable in everyone. Regional Variation Geography affects language, both within a country and between countries, giving rise to regional accents and dialects, and to the pigdens and creoles which emerged around the world whenever English first came into contact with other languages. International regional varieties have been observed within English from its earliest days, as seen in such labels as Northern, London, and Scottish. International varieties are more recent in origin, as seen in such labels as American, Australian, and Indian. Regional language variation is studied by sociolinguists, geographical linguists, dialectologists, and others. The actual designation depending on the focus and emphasis of the study. Temporal variation. Time affects a language, both in the long term and short term giving rise to several highly distinctive processes and varieties. Long-term. English has changed throughout the centuries, as can be seen from such clearly distinguishable linguistic periods as Old English, Middle English, and Elizabethan English. Language change is an inevitable and continuing process, whose study is chiefly carried on by philologists and historical linguists. Short-term. English changes within the history of a single person. This is most noticeable while children are acquiring their mother tongue. But it is also seen when people learn a foreign language, develop their style as adult speakers or writers, and sometimes find that their linguistic abilities are lost or seriously impaired through injury or disease. 
psycholinguists study language learning and loss, as do several other professionals, notably speech therapists and language teachers. Why Janus? The Roman god Janus, here seen on a Roman coin in his usual representation with a double-faced head, a spirit associated with doorways and archways, looking backwards as well as forwards. He is also often regarded as the god of beginnings. The month of January is named after him. His location on this opening spread has, however, a further significance. The two facets of language study represented on these pages, the structure and use, have traditionally been studied independently of each other. A major theme of the present book is to assert their interdependence. What are English structures for if not to be used? How can we understand the uses of English without investigating their structure? Structure and use are two sides of the same coin. Roman or otherwise, and this principle is reflected in the organization of the present book. But is it art? Just occasionally, someone tries to visualize language in a way which goes beyond the purely diagrammatic. This print was made by art students as part of their degree. They were asked to attend lectures from different university courses and then present an abstract design which reflected their perception of the topic. As may perhaps be immediately obvious, this design is the result of their attending a lecture on the structure of the English language, given by the present author. The design's asymmetries well represent the irregularities and erratic research paths, which are so much a part of English language study. Equally, of course, they could represent the structural disorganization of the lecturer. Why study the English language? Because it's fascinating. It is remarkable how often the language turns up as a topic of interest in daily conversation, whether it is a question about accents and dialects, a comment about usage and standards, or simply curiosity about a world's origin and history because it's important. The dominant role of English as a world language forces it upon our attention in a way that no language has ever done before. As English becomes the chief means of communication between nations, it is crucial to ensure that it is taught accurately and efficiently, and to study changes in its structure and use, because it's fun. One of the most popular leisure pursuits is to play with the English language, with its words, sounds, spellings, and structures. Crosswords, Scrabble, media word shows, and many other quizzes and guessing games keep millions happily occupied every day, teasing their linguistic brain centers and sending them running to their dictionaries. Because it's beautiful. Each language has its unique beauty and power, as seen to best effect in the works of its great orators and writers. We can see the thousand-year-old history of English writing only through the glass of language, and anything we can learn about English as a language can serve to increase our appreciation of its oratory and literature. Because it's useful. 
Getting the language right is a major issue in almost every corner of society. No one wants to be accused of ambiguity and obscurity or find themselves talking or writing at cross-purposes. The more we know about the language, the more chance we shall have of success, whether we are advertisers, priests, politicians, journalists, doctors, lawyers, or just ordinary people at home trying to understand and be understood. Because it's there. English, more than any other language, has attracted the interest of professional linguists. It has been analyzed in dozens of different ways as part of the linguist's aim of devising a theory about the nature of language in general. The study of the English language in this way becomes a branch of linguistics, English linguistics. Part 1. The History of English The history of English is a fascinating field of study in its own right but it also provides a valuable perspective for the contemporary study of the language, and thus makes an appropriate opening section for this book. The historical account promotes a sense of identity and continuity, and enables us to find coherence in many of the fluctuations and conflicts of present-day English language use. Above all, it satisfies the deep-rooted sense of curiosity we have about our linguistic heritage. People like to be aware of their linguistic roots. We begin as close to the beginning as we can get, using the summary accounts of early chronicles to determine the language's continental origins. The Anglo-Saxon corpus of poetry and prose, dating from around the 7th century, provides the first opportunity to examine the linguistic evidence. Section 3 outlines the characteristics of Old English texts, and gives a brief account of the sound spellings, grammar, and vocabulary which they display. A similar account is given to the Middle English period, beginning with the effects of the language of the French invasion, and concluding with a discussion of the origins of Standard English. At all points, special attention is paid to the historical and cultural setting to which texts relate, and to the character of the leading literary works, such as Beowulf, and the Canterbury Tales. The modern English period begins with the English of Caxton and the Renaissance, continues with that of Shakespeare and the King James Bible, and ends with the landmark publication of Johnson's Dictionary. A recurring theme is the extent and variety of language change during this period. The next section on modern English follows the course of further language change, examines the nature of early grammars, traces the development of new varieties and attitudes in America, and finds in literature, especially in the novel, an invaluable linguistic mirror. Several present-day uses controversies turn out to have their origins during this period. By the end of section 6, we are within living memory. The final section looks at what has happened to the English language in the 20th and 21st centuries, and in particular, at its increasing presence worldwide. The approach is again historical, tracing the way English has traveled to the United States, Canada, Africa, Australia, South and Southeast Asia, and several other parts of the globe. The section reviews the concept of world English, examines the statistics of usage, 
and discusses the problems of intelligibility and identity which arise when a language achieves such widespread use. The notion of standard English, seen from both national and international perspectives, turns out to be of special importance. Part 1 then concludes with some thoughts about the future of the language, especially in Europe, in a post-Brexit world, and about the relationships which have grown up sometimes amicable, sometimes antagonistic, between English and other languages. Chapter 2. The Origins of English To Aetius, thrice console the groans of the Britons. Thus, according to the Anglo-Saxon historian, the Venerable Bede, began the letter written to the Roman consul by some of the Celtic people who had survived the ferocious invasions of the Scots and the Picts in the early decades of the 5th century. The barbarians drive us to the sea. The sea drives us back towards the barbarian. Between them we are exposed to two sorts of death. We are either slain or drowned. The plea fell on deaf ears. Although the Romans had sent assistance in the past, they were now fully occupied by their own wars with Bledla and Attila, kings of the Huns. The attack from the north continued and the British were forced to look elsewhere for help. Bede gives a succinct and sober account of what then took place. They consulted what was to be done and where they could seek assistance to prevent or repel the cruel and frequent incursions of the northern nations. And they all agreed with their king Vortigern to call over to their aid from parts beyond the sea, the Saxon nation. In the year of our Lord 449, the nation of the angels, or Saxons, being invited by the aforesaid king, arrived in Britain with three longships, and had a place assigned to them to reside in by the same king, in the eastern part of the island, that they might thus appear to be fighting for their country, whilst their real intentions were to enslave it. Accordingly, they engaged with the enemy, who were come from the north to give battle and obtain the victory, which, being known at home in their own country, as also the fertility of the country, and the cowardice of the Britons, a more considerable fleet was quickly sent over, bringing a still greater number of men, which, being added to the former, made up an invincible army. Bede describes the invaders as belonging to the three most powerful nations of Germany, the Saxons, the Angels, and the Jutes. The first group to arrive came from Jutland, the northern part of Denmark, and were led, according to the Chronicles, by two Jutish brothers, Hengist and Horsa. They landed at Ebbsfleet in the Isle of Thanet and settled in the areas now known as Kent, the Isle of Wight, and parts of Hampshire. The Angles came from the south of the Danish peninsula and entered Britain much later, along the eastern coast, settling in parts of Mercia, Northumbria, the land of the north of the Humber, where in 547 they established a kingdom and what is now known as East Anglia. The Saxons came from an area further south and west, along the coast of the North Sea, and from 477 settled in various parts of southern and southeastern Britain. The chroniclers talk about groups of East, West, and South Saxons, distinctions which are reflected in their later names of Essex, Wessex, and Sussex. 
The name Middlesex suggests that they were the Middle Saxons too. Bede's account takes up the story. In a short time, swarms of aforesaid nations came over the island, and they began to increase so much that they became terrible to the natives themselves who had invited them. Then, having on a sudden entered into league with the Picts, whom they had by this time expelled by the force of their arms, they began to turn their weapons against their confederates. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, compiled over a century later than Bede under Alfred the Great, gives a grim catalogue of disasters for the Britons. 457. In this year, Hengst and Esk fought against the Britons at a place which is called Crayford Kent, and there slew 4,000 men, and the Britons then forsook Kent and fled to London in great terror. 465. In this year, Hengst and Esk fought against the Welsh near Whipplesfoot, and there slew 12 Welsh nobles and one of the thanes, whose name was whipped, was slain there. 473. In this year, Hengst and Esk fought against the Welsh and captured innumerable spoils, and the Welsh fled from the country as one flies from fire. The fighting went on for several decades, but the imposition of Anglo-Saxon power was never in doubt. Over a period of about a hundred years, further bands of immigrants continued to arrive, and Anglo-Saxon settlements spread to all areas apart from the highlands of the west and north. By the end of the 5th century, the foundation was established for the emergence of the English language. The name of the language. With scant respect for priorities, the Germanic invaders called the native Celts Welis, foreigners, from which the name Welsh is derived. The Celts called the invaders Saxons, regardless of their tribe, and this practice was followed by the early Latin writers. By the end of the 6th century, however, the term Angli, or Angles, was in use. As early as 601, a king of Kent, Ethbert, is called Rex Anglorum, king of the Angles. And during the 7th century, Angli, or Anglia, for the country, became the usual Latin names. Old English Angle derives from this usage, and the name of the language found in Old English texts is from the outset referred to as English, spelled E-N-G-L-I-S-C, the S-C spelling representing the sound of S-H, the sh. References to the name of the country as Englaland, land of the Angles, from which came England, do not appear until circa 1000. Before we begin this next section, it might be a good time to take a little bit of a break, stretch your legs and get ready, because the next section is long. Welcome back. I hope you had a nice little break. Now, let's continue with our study of the history of English. Chapter 3, Old English. The Early Period. Before the Anglo-Saxon invasions, the language or languages spoken by the native inhabitants of the British Isles belonged to the Celts family, introduced by a people who had come to the islands around the middle of the first millennium BC. Many of these settlers were, in turn, 
eventually subjugated by the Romans, who arrived in 43 AD. But by 410, the Roman armies had gone, withdrawn to help defend their empire in Europe. After a millennium of settlements by Celtic speakers and half a millennium of speakers of Latin, what effect did this have on the language spoken by the arriving Anglo-Saxons? Celtic borrowings. There is surprisingly very little Celtic influence, or perhaps it is not so surprising given the savage way in which the Celtic communities were destroyed or pushed back into the areas we now know as Cornwall, Wales, Cumbria, and the Scottish borders. Many Celts, or Roman Celts, doubtless remained in the east and south, perhaps as slaves, perhaps intermarrying, but their identity would, after a few generations, have been lost within Anglo-Saxon society. Whatever we might expect from such a period of cultural contact, the Celtic language of Roman Britain influenced Old English hardly at all. Only a handful of Celtic words were borrowed at the time, and a few have survived into modern English, sometimes in regional dialect use. Crag, come, which is a deep valley, bin, car, which is a rock, dun, which means gray or dun, brock, which is a badger, and tor, which is a peak. Others include bannock, a piece, rice, which is rule, gaffaluk, a small spear, a brat, as a cloak, la, which is a lake, dry, for sorcerer, and cluk, as a bell. A few Celtic words of this period ultimately come from Latin, brought in by the Irish missionaries. These include asin, or ass, anchor, which is hermit, a stair, which is history, and possibly cross. But there cannot be more than two dozen loan words in all. And there are even very few Celtic-based place names in what is now southern or eastern England. They include such river names as Thames, Avon, Don, X, Usk, and Y. Town names include Dover, which means water, Eccles, which is church, Bray, which is hill, London, which is possibly a tribal name, Kent, which means borderland, and the use of care, K-C-A-E-R, as a fortified place, as in Carlisle, and Penn, which is a head or top of a hill, as in Pendle. Latin loans. Latin has been a major influence on English throughout its history, and there is evidence of its role from the earliest moments of contact. The Roman armies and merchants gave new names to many local objects and experiences, and introduced several fresh concepts. About half of the new words were to do with plants, animals, food and drink, and household items. Old English peace, P-I-S-E, means pea. Planta, plant. Win, wine. Cease, is cheese. Cattle, cat. Cattle, kettle. Dish, spelled D-I-S-C, for obviously dish. Candle, candle. Other important clusters of words related to clothing, belt, Seams, which is shirt, soter, which is shootmaker, buildings and settlements, tiggle is tile, wheel is wall, seaster is city, strut 
his road, military and legal institutions, such as WIC, as in camp, DIT, as saying, Scrifan as decree, commerce, uh, Manigan for trade, CPN for buy, Pund for pound, and religion, mass, monk, and minister, all having roots in the old Anglo-Saxon Latin words. Whether the Latin words were already used by the Anglo-Saxon tribes on the continent of Europe or were introduced from within Britain is not always clear, though a detailed analysis of the sound changes they display can help. But the total number of Latin words present in English at the very beginning of the Anglo-Saxon period is not large, less than 200. Although Vulgar Latin, the variety of spoken Latin used throughout the empire, must have continued in use, at least as an official language, for some years after the Roman army left, for some reason it did not take root in Britain as it had so readily done in continental Europe. Some commentators see in this the first sign of an Anglo-Saxon monolingual mentality. Anglo-Saxon or Old English The name Anglo-Saxon came to refer in the 16th century to all aspects of the early period, people, culture, and language. It is still the usual way of talking about the people and the cultural history, but since the 19th century, when the history of languages came to be studied in detail, Old English has been the preferred name for the language. This name emphasizes the continued development of English from Anglo-Saxon times through Middle English to the present, and it is the usage of the present book, abbreviated as OE. Some authors, nonetheless, still use the term Anglo-Saxon for the language. The choice of this name reflecting their view that the nature of the language in this early period is very different from what is later to be found under the heading of English. Runes. Old English was first written in the runic alphabet. This alphabet was used in Northern Europe, in Scandinavia, present-day Germany, and the British Isles, and it has been preserved in about 4,000 inscriptions and a few manuscripts. It dates from around the 3rd century AD. No one knows exactly where the alphabet came from, but it seems to be a development of one of the alphabets of Southern Europe, probably the Roman, which runes resemble closely. The common runic alphabet found throughout the area consisted of 24 letters. It can be written horizontally in either direction. Each letter had a name, and the alphabet as a whole was called by the name of its first six letters, the Futhorc, in the same way as the word alphabet comes from the Greek alpha and beta. The version found in Britain used extra letters to cope with the range of sounds found in Old English. In its most developed form, in 9th century Northumbria, it consisted of 31 symbols. The inscriptions of Old English are found on weapons, jewelry, monuments, and other artifacts, and date largely from the 5th or 6th centuries AD, the earliest at Castor by Norwich, possibly being late 4th century. They often say simply who made or owned the object. Most of the large rune stones say little more than X raised this stone in memory of Y, and often the message is unclear.
the meaning of rune. What rune means is debatable. There is a long-standing tradition which attributes it to such senses as whisper, mystery, and secret, suggesting that the symbols were originally used for magical or mystical rituals. Such associations were certainly present in the way the pagan Vikings and possibly the continental Germans used the corresponding word, but there is no evidence that they were present in Old English. Current research suggests that the word run, pronounced rune, had been thoroughly assimilated into Anglo-Saxon Christianity and meant simply sharing of knowledge or thoughts. Any extension to the word of magic and superstition is not part of the native tradition. Modern English rune is not even a survival of the Old English word, but a later borrowing from the Norse via Latin. For the modern magical sense of rune, we are therefore indebted to the Scandinavian and not the Anglo-Saxon tradition. It is this sense which surfaced in the 19th century in a variety of esoteric publications, and which developed in the popular and fantastic imagination of the 20th century, perhaps most famously in the writing of Tolkien. The Old English Runic Alphabet The list presented gives the names of the symbols in Old English and their meanings, where these are known. It does not give the many variant shapes which can be found in the different inscriptions. The symbols consist mainly of intersecting straight lines, showing their purpose for engraving on stone, wood, metal, or bone. Manuscripts' use of ruins do exist in a few early poems, notably in four passages where the name of Kinwolf is represented, and in the solutions to some of the riddles in the Exeter book, and are evidence until the 11th century, especially in the north, but there are very few of them. The Old English Corpus There is a dark age between the arrival of the Anglo-Saxons and the first Old English manuscripts. A few scattered inscriptions in the language date from the 5th and 6th centuries, written in the runic alphabet, which the invaders brought with them. But these give very little information about what the language is like. The literary age began only after the arrival of the Roman missionaries, led by Augustine, who came to Kent in AD 597. The rapid growth of monastic centers led to large numbers of Latin manuscripts being produced, especially of the Bible and other religious texts. Because of this increasingly literary climate, Old English manuscripts also began to be written, much earlier indeed than the earliest vernacular texts from other Northern European countries. The first texts, dating from around 700, are glossaries of Latin words translated into Old English, and a few early inscriptions and poems. But very little material remains from this period. Doubtless, many manuscripts were burned during the 8th century Viking invasions. The chief literary work of the period, the heroic poem Beowulf, survives in a single copy made around 1,000, possibly some 250 years after it was composed, though the question of its composition date is highly controversial. There are a number of short poems, again almost entirely preserved in late manuscripts, over half of them concerned with the Christian subjects, 
legends of the saints, extracts from the Bible, and devotional pieces. Several others reflect the Germanic tradition dealing with such subjects as war, traveling, patriotism, and celebration. Most extant Old English texts were written in the period following the reigns of King Alfred, from 849 to 899, who arranged the many Latin works to be translated, including Bede's ecclesiastical history. But the total corpus is extremely small. The number of words in the corpus of Old English compiled at the University of Toronto, which contains all the texts, but not all the alternative manuscripts of a text, is only 3.5 million, the equivalent of about 30 medium-sized modern novels. Only approximately 5% of this total, approximately 30,000 lines, is poetry. The Augustan Mission. It would be a considerable understatement to suggest, as one sometimes reads, that St. Augustine brought Christianity to Britain. This religion had already arrived through the Roman invasion, and in the 4th century had actually been given official status in the Roman Empire. It was a Briton, St. Patrick, who converted Ireland in the early 5th century, and a goodly number of early Welsh saints' names are remembered in place names beginning with Lan, which means Church of. The story of St. Alban, said to have been martyred in 305 near the city of Veralum, modern St. Albans, is recounted in detail by Bede. Augustine's task was more specific, to convert the Anglo-Saxons. He had been prior of the monastery of St. Andrew in Rome, before being chosen by Pope Gregory for the mission. He and his companions arrived on the Isle of Thanet to be met by Ethelbert, king of Kent, and they must have been heartily relieved to find that his wife was already a Celtic, a Christian. They were given leave to live and preach in Canterbury, and within a year the king himself was converted. Three bishops were established in the end of the decade, with Augustine as Archbishop of Canterbury, Justice as Bishop of Rochester, and Malicious at London as Bishop of the East Saxons. It took some time for this early success to become consolidated. Following Augustine's death in 604-605, there was much tension over religious practices between the Roman Christians and their Celtic counterparts, who had lived in isolation from Rome for so long. Matters came to a head, and the conflict over the date of Easter resolved in favor of Rome at the Synod of Whitby in 664. Part of the difficulty in developing the faith must have been linguistic. According to Bede, it was nearly 50 years before Anglo-Saxon was being used as a missionary tongue. King Egbert of Kent in 664 had to make a special plea to ensure that an Anglo-Saxon-speaking bishop was appointed, so that with a prelate of his own nation and language, the king and his subjects might be more perfectly instructed in the words and mysteries of the faith. This was the first expression of an issue which would be raised again several hundred years later in English language history. The Gregorian Pun 
In Bede, there is an account of St. Gregory's first meeting with the inhabitants of England. Gregory, evidently a punster of some ability, himself asked to be sent to Britain as a missionary, but the Pope of the time refused. Presumably because of Gregory's social position, the son of a senator and former prefect of the city. When Gregory became Pope himself in 590, he sent Augustine to do the job for him. Bede tells the story at the end of his account of Gregory's life, Book 2, Chapter 1. Nor is the account of St. Gregory, which has been handed down to us by the tradition of our ancestors, to be passed by in silence, in relation to his motives for taking such interest in the salvation of our nation, Britain. It is reported that some merchants, having just arrived at Rome on a certain day, exposed many things for sale in the marketplace, and an abundance of people resorted thither to buy. Gregory himself went with the rest, and, among other things, some boys were set to sail, their bodies white, their countenances beautiful, and their hair very fine. Having viewed them, he asked, as is said, from what country or nation were they brought, and was told from the island of Britain, whose inhabitants were of such personal appearance. He again inquired whether those islanders were Christian or still involved in the errors of paganism and was informed that they were pagans. Then, fetching a deep sigh from the bottom of his heart, Alas, what a pity, said he, that the author of darkness is possessed of men of such fair countenance, and that being remarkable of such graceful aspects, their minds should be void of inward grace. He therefore again asked what was the name of the nation, and was answered that they were called angels. <laughs> right, said he, for they have an angelic face, and it becomes such to be co-heirs with the angels in heaven. What is the name, proceeded he, of the province from which they are brought? It was replied the natives of the province were called Deiri. Truly, they are Deira, said he, withdrawn from wrath and called to the mercy of Christ. How was the king of that province called? They told him his name was Ella, and he, alluding to the name, said, Hallelujah, the praise of God the Creator must be sung in those parts. The Scots Tale The opening page of Beowulf text is taken from the text now lodged in the British Library in London. The manuscript is a copy made in circa 1000, but it was damaged by a fire at the Catonia Library in 1731, hence the odd shape of the page. The name of the poet, or scalp, whose version is found there is not known, nor is it clear when the work was first composed. One scholarly tradition assigns it to the 8th century, another to a somewhat later date. This is the first great narrative poem in English. It is a heroic tale about a 6th century Scandinavian hero, Beowulf, who comes to the aid of the Danish king Hrothgar. Hrothgar's retinue is under daily attack from a monstrous troll, Grendel, at the Hall of Hart in Denmark, possibly located on the site of modern Leary near Copenhagen. Beowulf travels from Gotland in southern Sweden, and after a great fight, kills the monster, and in a second fight, the monster's vengeful mother. 
Beowulf returns home, recounts his story, and is later made king of the Gints, ruling for 50 years. There, as an old man, he kills a dragon in a fight that leads to his own death. The plot summary does not do justice to the depth and meaning and stylistic impact of the work. Apart from its lauding of courage, heroic defiance, loyalty to one's lord, and other dramatic values, Beowulf introduces elements of a thoroughly Christian perspective, and there are many dramatic undercurrents and ironies. The monster is a classical figure in Germanic tradition, but is also said to be a descendant of Cain and a product of hell and the devil. The contrast between earthly success and mortality is a recurring theme. While Beowulf is being feted as Hrothgar's court, the poet alludes to disastrous events which will one day affect the gates, providing a note of doom that counterpoints the triumphal events of the narrative. The poem is full of dramatic contrasts of this kind. Whether the poem is a product of oral improvisation or is a more consciously contrived literary work has been a bone of scholarly contention. Many of its striking features, in particular its alliterative rhythmical formulae, are those we would associate with oral composition, for they would be a valuable aid to memorization. On the other hand, modern scholars have drawn attention to the pattern complexity of its narrative structure, its metrical control, and its lexical richness, suggesting a literary process of composition. The critic W.P. Kerr expressed one view in the Dark Ages. The Beowulf is a book to be read, but if so, it is one which makes maximum use of style which must originally have evolved from use in oral poetry. The Earliest English Literature As with foreign languages, there is never complete agreement about the best way of translating Old English texts. Nor is there unanimity about the best way of editing them. The extracts on these and adjacent pages are here to illustrate the range and character of the literature of the period, but they also show the varied editorial practice which exists. Some editors have tried to make their text resemble the original manuscript as closely as possible. Others have produced a modernized version. About the need for editing, there is no doubt. To print a facsimile of Old English texts would be to make them unreadable to all but the specialist. There is plenty of scope for editorial intervention. Scrabble habits of capitalization, punctuation, paragraphing, word spacing, and word division were diverse and inconsistent, and order needs to be imposed. There are no poetic line divisions in the manuscript of Beowulf, for example, and these have to be added. Nonetheless, Editorial practices vary greatly in the way texts are made consistent. Some editors silently correct scribal errors. Others draw attention to them in parentheses. Missing letters at the edge of a torn or burned manuscript may be restored, or their omission may be indicated by special symbols. Some editions add an indication of vowel length. Some replace outmoded letters by modern equivalents. Poetic half-lines may or may not be recognized. Both practices are shown here. And editors vary in the attention they pay to the existence of alternative readings 
in different copies of a manuscript. An important feature which can add a great deal to the alien appearance of a text is whether the scribe's orthographic abbreviations are retained or are expanded. In some texts, for example, a P is used as the abbreviation for PET or for PP, 7 for the various forms of AND, and the tilde marks an expansion, usually to a following nasal. Old English poetic manuscripts contain no titles. Titles such as Beowulf or the Seafarer have been added by editors, usually in the 19th century. Most of the poetry is also anonymous, the chief exceptions being the few lines known to be from Cardamon, and four poems containing the names of Cynewulf, woven in ruins into the text as an, acron- as an acrostic, so that readers could pray for him. We know more of the prose authors, who include King Alfred, Archbishop Wolfstan, and Alfric. But even here, most of the surviving material, as in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, is anonymous. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is not a single text, but a compilation from several sources which differ in date and place of origin. It takes the form of a year-by-year diary, with some years warranting extensive comment, some a bare line or two, and many nothing at all. Most ancient European chronicles were kept in Latin, but the present work is distinctive for its use of Old English, and also for the vast time span it covers, from year one, the birth of Christ, to various dates in the 11th or 12th century. There are seven surviving chronicle manuscripts, six of which are completely in Old English, the seventh partly in Latin. Scholars have given each text a distinctive letter name, but they are more commonly known by the name of their source location or that of an early owner. Old English Letters Although there is much in common between Old and Modern English, it is the differences which strike us most forcibly when we first encounter edited Anglo-Saxon texts. The editors have done a great deal to make the text more accessible to present-day readers. By introducing modern conventions of word spaces, punctuation, capitalization, and line division. But there are certain features of the original spelling which are usually retained, and it is these which make the language look alien. Learning to interpret the distinctive symbols of Old English is therefore an essential first step. Old English texts were written on parchment or vellum. The first manuscripts were in the Roman alphabet using a half-unctual, minuscule script brought over by Irish missionaries. A good example is Bede's Ecclesiastical History. The rounded letter shapes of this script later developed into the more angular and cursive style called the Insular Script, which was the usual form of writing until the 11th century. The Old English alphabet was very similar to the one still in use, though any modern eye looking at the original manuscripts would be immediately struck by the absence of capital letters. A few of the letters were different in shape. There was an elongated shape for S, for example. Modern letter G appeared more as the character 3, often called Yo, for its sound. A few other letter shapes, such as E, F, and R, also look rather different. Several modern letters will not be seen, 
J is usually spelled with the same character as G. V with an F, Q, X, and Z are very rarely used. W was written using a runic symbol, win, W-Y-N-N, a P, which can still be seen printed in older editions of Old English texts. Modern editions use W. Variant forms using U or two U's are sometimes found, especially in early texts. A-E was called Ash, a name borrowed from the runic alphabet, though the symbol is an adaptation of Latin A-E, which is gradually replaced during the 8th century. Its sound was somewhere between A and E. An unusually shaped P was called Thorn, both the name and symbol being borrowed from the runic alphabet. It represented either the TH of sounds, the hard or the soft. This symbol and an O were in fact interchangeable. A scribe might use the first one, then the other, in the same manuscript, though Thorn became commoner as the latter Old English period. A TH spelling was also sporadically used at the very beginning of the Old English period, presumably reflecting Irish influence, but it was quickly replaced by the new symbols. There was a symbol, looked like an O, that was called that in Anglo-Saxon times, though the name given to it by 19th century editors is F, pronounced as in the first syllable of weather. The origin of this symbol is obscure, though it may be an adaptation of an early Irish letter. Numbers were written only in Roman symbols, as can be seen in the dates of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Arabic numerals came much later. The standard Old English alphabet thus had the following 24 letters. A, A A-E, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, K, L, M, N, O, P, R, S, T, Thorn, and that symbol, U, W, and Y. Several of these letters were used in combinations, digraphs, to represent single sound units, in much the same way as do several modern forms, such as TH and EA, as in meat. One other point about spelling should be noted. There was a great deal of variation reflecting the different preferences of individual scribes, as well as regional attempts to capture local sounds precisely. Practices also varied over time, but even with a single scribe and a single place at a single time, there could be variation, as can be seen from the existence of several variant forms in manuscripts such as Beowulf. The spelling became much more regular by the time of Elfric in the late 10th century. But this was a temporary state of affairs. Change was on the horizon in the form of new continental scribal practices, an inevitable graphic consequence of 1066. Old English Sounds How do we know what Old English sounded like? The unhelpful answer is that we do not. In later periods, we can rely on accounts of contemporary writers but there is none of this in Old English. The best we can do is make a series of informed guesses based on a set of separate criteria and hope that the results are sufficiently similar to warrant some general conclusions. A great deal of scholarship has been devoted to this issue, and we now have a fair degree of certainty 
about how most of the sounds were pronounced. If an Anglo-Saxon were available, using the information on these pages, we could probably communicate intelligibly. We would have to get used to each other's accent, of course. In much the same way as modern speakers, unused, say, to Geordie or Cockney speech, need to do. There is no reason to suppose that there was any less phonetic variation in Anglo-Saxon times than there is today, and the symbols opposite should not be interpreted too narrowly. To say that Old English A-E was pronounced as an open front vowel is sufficient to distinguish it from E and other vowels, but it does not tell us the exact vowel quality that would have been used. The Evidence There are four main types of evidence used in deducing the sound values of Old English letters. Alphabetic logic. We know a great deal about how the letters of the Roman alphabet were pronounced, and it seems reasonable to assume that, when the missionaries adapted this alphabet to Old English, they tried to do so in a consistent and logical way. The letter representing the sound of M in Latin would have been used to represent the same sound in English. Likewise, if they found it necessary to find a new letter, this must have been because they felt no Latin letters were suitable, as is the case of the new symbol AE. Similarly, a great deal of information comes from the way variations of regional accent and changes over time are shown in the spelling of Old English texts. The scribes generally tried to write words down to show the way they were spoken, They were not in a culture where there were arbitrary rules for standardized spelling, though rigorous conventions were maintained in certain abbeys. So we're not faced with such problems as silent letters. The W of written, the ancestor of write, was pronounced. Old English is accordingly much more phonetic than modern English. Comparative construction. We can work backwards from later states of the language to make deductions about how Old English must have sounded. Several of the sounds of modern English, especially dialect forms, are likely to have close similarities with those of Old English. It is unlikely that there is any real difference in the way most of the consonants were pronounced then and now. The chief problems are the vowels, whose values are always more difficult to pinpoint. Sound changes. We know a great deal about the kinds of sound change which take place as language progresses. It is therefore possible to propose a particular sound value for an Old English letter different from the one in existence today, as long as we're able to give a plausible explanation for the change. For example, the Old English equivalent to it was hit. If we claim that the H was pronounced we have to assume that people stop pronouncing it at a later stage in the language. Is this a likely sound change? Given that the dropping of H in unstressed pronouns is something that happens regularly today, for example, I saw him, it would seem so. Poetic evidence. The way in which poets make words rhyme or alliterate can provide important clues about the way the sound system works so can the rhythmical patterns of lines of verse, which can show the way a word was stressed 
and thus indicate what value to give a vowel appearing in an unstressed syllable, a critical matter in the late Old English period. Complications. There are many pitfalls to trap the unwary philologist. Scribes could be very inconsistent. They were also prone to error. But of course, we do not know in advance whether an idiosyncratic form in a manuscript is in fact an error or a deliberate attempt to represent an ongoing sound change or a regionalism. A great deal of detailed comparative work may be required before we can be sure. The absence of universal spelling rules can also pose a problem, as there was no necessity for scribes to be consistent, and many were not. Manuscripts can vary in their use of the character to represent the TH sound, single or double consonants, and several groups of vowels, notably I, Y, and IE. At one point, we might find hit and another hit spelled H-Y-T, or gilden, G-Y-L-D-A-N, as in pay, might be spelled gildan, G-I-E-L-D-A-N. Such difficulties, it must be appreciated, contribute only to the fortitude and motivation of the true Old English phonologist. The first vowel shift. We can say one thing with certainty about the accent of the Anglo-Saxon invaders after they arrived in Britain. It changed. We know this because the words which emerged in Old English out of the Germanic spoken on the continent looked and therefore sounded very different from their latter counterparts in the early days of German. What happened to cause such a difference? A related observation arises out of the way some Latin words were borrowed into Old English without a change in their vowel, whereas others did change. The explanation is now a well-established part of Germanic philology. It asserts that the Old English vowels changed in quality between the time of the Anglo-Saxons left the continent and the time Old English was first written down. By examining hundreds of cases, it is possible to establish a pattern in the way this change took place. In Germanic, there were many words where a vowel in a stressed syllable was immediately followed by a high front vowel, or a vowel-like sound, in the next syllable. The plural of fought, F-O-T, is thought to have been fotis, F-O-T-I-Z, with the stress on the F-O. For some reason, the quality of this high front sound caused the preceding vowel to change, to mutate. In the case of fot, F-O-T, the O becomes E, which ultimately came to be pronounced as in modern feet. The I-Z ending dropped away, for once the plural was being shown by the E vowel, it was unnecessary to have an ending as well. Feet therefore emerged as a regular noun in English, though the process which gave rise to it was perfectly regular, affecting hundreds of cases. This process has come to be called I-mutation. It is thought to have taken place during the 7th century. There is no sign of the vowels continuing to change in this way in later periods. I-mutation is a kind of vowel harmony, a very natural process, 
which affects many modern languages. People, it seems, readily fall into the habit of making one vowel in a word sound more like another in the same word. And this is what happened in 7th century Old English. All back vowels in the context described were changed into front vowels, and all short front vowels and diphthongs were affected too, being articulated even further toward the higher, with the exception of I, of course, which is already as far forward as can, and as high in the mouth as any vowel can be. There are a few exceptions and complications which analysts still puzzle over. But the general effect on the language is immense, as this sound changed applied to the most frequently occurring word classes, all of which had I sounds in their inflectional endings. This is why we have in modern English such pairs as food and feed, as well as strong and strength, and several others. Not all the forms affected by I mutation have survived into modern English, though. In Old English, the plural of book was beck, B-E-C, but this has not come through into modern English as beak. The forces of analogy have taken over and caused a change to the regular books. We do not know why the I-mutation operated when it did. What was it that made 7th century Anglo-Saxons start pronouncing their vowels in this way? And why did the process not affect all cases of I in a following suffix? Words ending in ing, for example, were not affected. This phonological detective story is by no means over. Some features of Old English grammar. To modern eyes and ears, Old English grammar provides a fascinating mixture of the familiar and the unfamiliar. The word order is much more varied than it would be in modern English, but there are several places where it is strikingly similar. Adjectives usually go before their nouns, as do prepositions, articles, and other grammatical words, just as they do today. Sometimes, whole sentences are identical in the order of words, or nearly so, as can be seen from the word-for-word translation in the Cadman text below. The main syntactic differences affect the placing of the verb, which quite often appears before the subject, and also at the very end of the clause, a noticeable feature of this particular story. In modern English, word order is relatively fixed. The reason Old English order could vary so much is that the relationship between the parts of the sentence were signaled by other means. Like other Germanic languages, Old English was inflected, The job a word did in the sentence was signaled by the kind of ending it had. Today, most of these inflections have died away, leaving the modern reader with the major task of getting used to the word endings, in order to understand the Old English texts. It is necessary to learn the different forms taken by the verbs, nouns, pronouns, adjectives, and definite article. The irregular verbs, which change their form from present to past tense, are a particular problem, as they continue to be for foreign learners, because there are so many more of them. Nonetheless, it should be plain from reading the glosses to the Cadman extract that present-day English speakers already have a feel for Old English grammar. Old English Vocabulary The vocabulary of Old English presents a mixed picture to those encountering it for the first time. 
the majority of the words in the Cadman extract are very close to modern English. Once we allow for the unfamiliar spelling and the unexpected inflections, whereas those in the poetic text are not. In the Cadman text, we would have very little difficulty recognizing S-I-G-A-N as sing or S-T-O-D as stood. Most of the prepositions and pronouns are identical in form, though not always in meaning. For, from, in, at, he, him, his are all the same. On the other hand, some of the words look very strange because they have since disappeared from the language. In the Cadman extract, these include G-E-L-I-M-P-L-I-C-E, Galimpus, which means suitable. N-E-A-T-A, nieta, means cattle. These examples also illustrate the chief characteristic of Old English lexicon, the readiness to build up words from a number of parts, a feature which has stayed with English ever since. Frequent use is made of prefixes and suffixes, and compound words are everywhere in evidence. The meaning of these words often emerges quite quickly, once their parts are identified. Particular care must be taken with words which look familiar, but whose meaning is different in modern English. An Anglo-Saxon whiff, W-I-F, was any woman, married or not. A fugol, F-U-G-O-L, means fowl, was any bird, not just a farmyard one. S-O-N-A, sona, means soon, meant immediately, not in a little while, as it does now. Wan, W-O-N or W-A-N, meant dark, not pale. And fast meant firm and fixed, not rapidly. These are false friends when translating out of Old English. Kennings. It is in the poetry that we find the most remarkable coinages. The genre abounds in the use of vivid figurative descriptions known as kennings a term from Old Norse poetic treatises. Kennings describe things indirectly, elusively, and often in compounds. Their meaning is not self-evident. There has been a leap of imagination, and this needs to be interpreted. Sometimes the interpretation is easy to make. Sometimes it is obscure and a source of critical debate. Famous kennings include the Whale Road, H-R-O-N-R-A-D, for the sea, Bonhaus, bone house, for a person's body, and Bidaloma, the battle light, for a sword. Often, phrases are used as well as compound words. God, for example, is described as Heofrancis, weird, guardian of heaven's kingdom, and as Monsonus Weird, Guardian of Mankind. These elements are particularly productive. There are over 100 compounds involving the word mod, M-O-D, which is mood, used in Old English for a wide range of attitudes, such as spirit, courage, pride, and arrogance. They include moodcraft and intelligence, glade moodness, kindness, mood siru, sorrow of soul, and mad mood, folly. 
Kennings are sometimes a problem to interpret because the frequency of synonyms in Old English makes it difficult to distinguish nuances in meaning. There are some 200 terms for man in Beowulf, for example, such as rink, guma, sek, bjorn, and it is not always easy to see why one is used and not another. When these words are used in compounds, the complications increase. Beterink and Drihinguma are both translatable as warrior, but would there be a noticeable difference in meaning if the second elements were exchanged? A careful analysis of all the contexts in which each element is used in Old English can often give clues and is now increasingly practicable. But this option is, of course, unavailable when the item is rare. And items are often rare. There may only be a single instance of a word in a text, or even in Old English as a whole. There are 903 noun compounds in Beowulf. But of these, 578 are used only once, and 518 of them are known only from this poem. In such circumstances, establishing the precise meaning of an expression becomes very difficult. Kennings were often chosen to satisfy the need for alliteration in a line, or to help the metrical structure. There is perhaps no particular reason for having Sinkfan, giver of treasure, at one point in Beowulf, and Goldfan, giver of gold, at another, other than the need to alliterate with the following word beginning with S in the first case and beginning with G in the second. But Kennings also allowed a considerable compression of meaning. And a great deal of study has been devoted to teasing out the various associations of ironies which come from using a particular form. A good example is anpathos, one plus paths, a route along which only one person may pass at a time. This meaning sounds innocuous enough, but to the Anglo-Saxon mind, such paths provided difficult fighting conditions, and there must have been a connotation of danger. The word is used in Beowulf at the point where the hero and his followers are approaching the monster's lair. Their route leads them along Enga and Pathas, a narrow lone paths, where there would have been an ever-present risk of ambush. Beowulf stands out as a poem which makes great use of compounds. There are over a thousand of them, comprising a third of all words in the text. Many of these words, and of the elements they contain, are not known outside of poetry. Some, indeed, might have been archaisms, but most are there because of their picturesque and vivid character, adding considerable variety to the descriptions of battles, seafaring, the court, and fellowship in Anglo-Saxon times. Congrats, you made it through the Old English period. Maybe take another quick break before we delve into the Middle English period. Welcome back. Chapter 4, Middle English. The year 1066 marks the beginning of a new social and linguistic area in Britain, but it does not actually identify the boundary between Old and Middle English. It was a long time before the effects of the Norman invasion worked their way into the language, and Old English 
continued to be used meanwhile. Even a century later, texts were still being composed in the West Saxon variety that had developed in the years following the reign of King Alfred. The period we call Middle English runs from the beginning of the 12th century until the middle of the 15th. It's a difficult period to define and discuss, largely because of the changes taking place between the much more distinctive and identifiable words of Old English and Modern English. The manuscripts give an impression of considerable linguistic variety and rapid transition. Also, as the gradual decay of Anglo-Saxon traditions and literary practices, overlapping with the sudden emergence of French and Latin literacy, gives much of this period an elusive and unfocused character. It's not until 1400 that a clear focus emerges in the work of Chaucer, but by then the period is almost over. Chaucer himself, indeed, is more often seen as a forerunner of modern English poetry than as a climax to Middle English. The Rise of French The main influence on English was, of course, French, strictly Norman French, the language introduced to Britain by the invader. Following William of Normandy's ascension, French was rapidly established in the corridors of power. French-speaking barons were appointed who brought over their own retinues. Soon after, French-speaking abbots and bishops were in place. La Franque, abbot of St. Stephen's at Caen, was made Archbishop of Canterbury in as early as 1070. Within 20 years of the invasion, almost all the religious houses were under French-speaking superiors, and several new foundations were solely French. Large numbers of French merchants and craftsmen crossed the channel to take advantage of the commercial opportunities provided by the new regime. And aristocratic links remained strong with Normandy, where the nobles kept their estates. Doubtless, bilingualism quickly flourished among those who crossed the social divide. English people learning French in order to gain advantages from the aristocracy, and baronial staff learning English as part of the daily contact with local communities. But there is hardly any sign of English being used among the new hierarchy, a situation which was to continue for over a century. The Rise of English During the 12th century, English became more widely used among the upper classes, and there was an enormous amount of intermarriage with English people. The largely monolingual French-speaking court was not typical of the rest of the country. Richard Fitzneil's Dialogues de Scicario, a dialogue of the Exchequer, written in 1177, reports, Now that the English and Normans have been dwelling together, marrying and giving in marriage, the two nations have become so mixed that it is scarcely possible today, speaking of free men, to tell us who is English, who is of Norman race. By the end of the 12th century, contemporary accounts suggest that some children of the nobility spoke English as a mother tongue and had to be taught French in school. French continued to be used in Parliament, the courts, and in public proceedings, but we know that translations into English increased in frequency throughout the period, as did the number of handbooks written for the teaching of French. From 1204, a different political climate emerged. King John of England came into conflict with King Philip of France and was obliged to give up control of Normandy. The English nobility lost their estates in France, 
and antagonism grew between the two countries, leading ultimately to the Hundred Years' War from 1337 to 1453. The status of French diminished as a spirit of English nationalism grew, culminating in the Barons' War from 1264 to 1265. In 1362, English was used for the first time at the opening of Parliament. By about 1425, it appears that English was widely used in England in writing as well as in speech. Reasons for Survival How had the language managed to survive the French invasion? After all, Celtic had not survived the Anglo-Saxon invasions 500 years before. Evidently, the English language in the 11th century was too well established for it to be supplanted by another language. Unlike Celtic, it had a considerable written literature and a strong oral tradition. It would have taken several hundred years of French immigration and large numbers of immigrants to have changed things. But the good relations between English and France lasted for only 150 years, and the number of Normans in the country may have been as low as 2% of the population. This 150 years, nonetheless, is something of a dark age in the history of the language. There is very little written evidence of English, and we can thus only speculate about what was happening to the language, though our understanding of the period is growing. Judging by the documents which have survived, it seems that French was the language of government, law, administration, literature, and the church, with Latin also used in administration, education, and worship. The position of English becomes clear in the 13th century when we find an increasing number of sermons, prayers, romances, songs, and other documents. Finally, in the 14th century, we have the major achievements of Middle English literature, culminating in the writing of Geoffrey Chaucer. The Transition from Old English A fundamental change in the structure of English took place during the 11th and 12th centuries, one without precedent in the history of the language and without parallel thereafter. Grammatical relationships in Old English had been expressed chiefly by the use of inflectional endings. In Middle English, they came to be expressed, as they are today, chiefly by word order. Why did this change take place? Few subjects in the history of English have attracted so much speculation. The Decay of Inflections About one fact there is no doubt. There are clear signs during the Old English period of the decay of the inflectional system. The surviving texts suggest that the change started in the north of the country and slowly spread south. Several of the Old endings are still present in the 12th century text of the Peterborough Chronicle opposite, but they are not used with much consistency, and they no longer seem to play an important role in conveying meaning. But why did the Old English inflectional endings decay? The most obvious explanation is that it became increasingly difficult to hear them because of the way words had come to be stressed during the evolution of the Germanic languages. The ancestor language of Germanic, Indo-European, had a free system of accentuation, in which the stress within a word moved according to intricate rules. In Germanic, this system changed, and most words came to carry the main stress on their first syllable. This is the system found throughout Old English, 
As always, there were exceptions. The GE prefix, for example, is never stressed. Having the main stress at the beginning of a word can readily give rise to an auditory problem at the end. This is especially so when there are several endings which are phonetically very similar, such as en, on, and an. In rapid conversational speech, it would have been difficult to distinguish them. The situation is not too far removed from that which still obtains in modern English, where people often make such forms as I, B, L, E, Ible, and Able, visible and washable, or Belgian and Belgium sound the same. This neutralization of vowel qualities undoubtedly affected the Old English system. The contact situation. However, auditory confusion could not be the sole reason. Other Germanic languages had a strong initial stress too, yet they retained their inflectional system, as is still seen in modern German. Why was the change so much greater in English? Some scholars cite the Viking settlement as the decisive factor. During the period of the Dane law, they argue, the contact between English and Scandinavian would have led to the emergence of a pigden-like variety of speech between the two cultures, and perhaps even eventually to a kind of creole which was used as a lingua franca. As with pidgins everywhere, there would have been a loss of word endings and greater reliance on word order. Gradually, this pattern would have spread until it affected the whole of the East Midlands area, from which standard English was eventually to emerge. At the very least, they conclude, this situation would have accelerated the process of inflectional decay, and may even have started it. Whether such arguments are valid depends on how far we believe that the speakers of Old English and Old Norse were unable to understand each other at that time, and this is largely a matter of speculation. Perhaps there existed a considerable degree of mutual intelligibility, given that the two languages had diverged only a few hundred years before. The roots of many words were the same, and in the Icelandic sagas it is said that the Vikings and the English could understand each other. Whatever the case, we can tell from the surviving Middle English text that the Dane law was a much more progressive area, linguistically speaking, than the rest of the country. Change which began here affected southern areas later. Some form of Viking influence cannot easily be dismissed. As inflections decayed, so the reliance on word order became critical, resulting in a grammatical system which is very similar to that found today. There is no sign in the Peterborough Chronicle extract of the Old English tendency to put the object before the verb, for example the subject-verb-object order, already a noticeable feature of Old English, has become firmly established by the beginning of the Middle English period. The Middle English Corpus The Middle English period has a much richer documentation that is found in Old English. This is partly the result of the post-conquest political situation. The newly centralized monarchy commissioned national and local surveys, beginning with the Doomsday Book, and there is a marked increase in the number of public and private documents, mandates, charters, contracts, tax rolls, and other administrative or judicial papers. 
However, the early material is of limited value to those interested in the linguistic history of English because it is largely written in Latin or French. And the only relevant data which can be extracted relate to English place and personal names. Most religious publication falls into the same category, with Latin maintaining its presence throughout the period as the official language of the church. A major difference from Old English is the absence of a continuing tradition of historical writing in the native language, as in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, a function which Latin supplanted and which has not revived until the 15th century. Material in English appears as a trickle in the 13th century, but within 150 years, it has become a flood. In the early period, we see a great deal of religious prose writing in the form of homilies, tracts, lives of the saints, and other aids to devotion and meditation. Sometimes a text was written with a specific readership in mind. The Anchorite's Guide, for example, was compiled by a spiritual director for three noble women who had abandoned the world to live as anchoresses. During the 14th century, there is a marked increase in the number of translated writings from French and Latin and of texts for teaching these languages. Guild records, proclamations, proverbs, dialogues, allegories, and letters illustrate the diverse range of new styles and genres. Toward the end of the century, the translations of the Bible inspired by John Wycliffe appear amid considerable controversy, and the associated movement produces many manuscripts. Finally, in the 1430s, there was a vast output in English from the office of the London Chancery Scribes, which strongly influenced the development of a standard written language. The Poetic Puzzle Poetry presents a puzzle. The Anglo-Saxon poetic tradition apparently dies out in the 11th century, to reappear patchily in the 13th. A lengthy poetic history of Britain, known as Lasman's Brute, is one of the earliest works to survive from the Middle English. And in the 14th century come the important texts of Pierce Plowman and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. What is surprising is that the illiterate of Old English style is still present in these works, despite an apparent break in poetic continuity of at least a hundred years. The conundrum has generated much discussion. Perhaps the alliterative technique was retained through prose. Several Middle English prose texts are strongly alliterative, and it is sometimes difficult to tell from a manuscript which genre, poetry or prose, a piece belongs to because the line divisions are not shown. Perhaps the Old English style survived through the medium of oral transmission. Or perhaps it is simply that most poetic manuscripts have been lost. Middle English poetry was inevitably much influenced by French literary traditions, both in content and style. One of the earliest examples is the 13th century verse contest known as The Owl and the Nightingale. Later works include romances in the French style, secular lyrics, bestiaries, ballads, biblical poetry, Christian legends, hymns, prayers, and elegies. The mystical dream vision popular in Europe, especially in Italy and France, is well illustrated by the poem modern editors have called Pearl, in which the writer recalls the death of his two-year-old daughter, who then acts as his spiritual comforter. Drama also begins to make its presence felt in the form of dialogues, pageants, and the famous cycles of mystery plays. 
Much of Middle English literature is of unknown authorship, but by the end of the period, this situation has changed. Among the prominent names which emerge in the later part of the 14th century are John Gower, William Langlin, John Wycliffe, and Geoffrey Chaucer, and sometime later, John Lydgate, Thomas Mallory, and William Caxton, and the poets who are collectively known as the Scottish Chaucerians. Rather than a somewhat random collection of interesting texts, there is now a major body of literature in the modern sense. It is this which provides the final part of the bridge between Middle and Early Modern English. The Chaucerian Achievement The tiny voice of this book can add nothing to the critical acclaim which has been given to Chaucer's poetic and narrative achievements, or to his insights into medieval attitudes and society. But it can affirm with some conviction the importance of his work to any history of the language. It is partly a matter of quantity. One complete edition prints over 43,000 lines of poetry, as well as two major prose works. But more crucial is the breadth and variety of his language, which ranges from the polished complexity of high-flown rhetoric to the natural simplicity of domestic chat. No previous author had shown such a range, and Chaucer's writing, in addition to its literary merits, is thus unique in the evidence it has provided about the state of medieval grammar, vocabulary, and pronunciation. Chaucer's best-known work, The Canterbury Tales, is not, of course, a guide to the spoken language of the time. It is a variety of the written language which has been carefully crafted. It uses a regular metrical structure and rhyme scheme, itself a departure from the free rhythms and alliteration of much earlier poetry. It contains many variations in word order dictated by the demand of the prosody. There are also frequent literary allusions and turns of phrase which make the text difficult to follow. What has impressed readers so much is that, despite the constraints, Chaucer has managed to capture so vividly the intriguing characters of the speakers and to reflect so naturally the colloquial features of their speech. In no other author, indeed, is there better support for the view that there is an underlying correspondence between the natural rhythm of English poetry and that of English everyday conversation. Middle English Spelling what is immediately noticeable from the range of texts illustrated in the preceding pages is the extraordinary diversity of Middle English spelling, far greater than that found in Old English. Students who are new to the period quickly learn the skill of glossary delving, encountering a variant spelling in an edited text, then trawling through the back of the book to track down what it is a variant of. A good editor makes the job easy by providing copious cross-references. Some words have a dozen or more variants. This situation results from a combination of historical, linguistic, and social factors. The sociolinguist impact of the French invasion, the continuation of the process of sound change which began in Anglo-Saxon times, and the considerable growth and movement in population during the medieval period, especially in the southeast of the country all help to influence the shape of the writing system. The change is quite dramatic. There is a marked contrast between the diverse and idiosyncratic forms used at the beginning of the period and the highly regularized system of spelling, which begins to appear in the 15th century in the work of the Chancery Scribes 
and William Caxton. Some textual features. The text of the Peterborough Chronicle, dating from the very beginning of the period, shows some of the important features of Middle English spelling. The Old English runic symbols are still in use, but there is some inconsistency. The TH spelling makes a sporadic appearance for the P diphthong symbol. The symbol P is used in the manuscript, but this is being represented with a W, as is usual in modern editions of these texts. Two U's together is also a common spelling for the sound. The word for wretched people, for example, is spelled both ways in the illustration. The letter G is used for a sound which most other texts of the time spell with a character resembling a three. There is some alternation between AE and A. In addition, U is used where we would now find V in such words as give and ever. Because of the spelling, several words look stranger than they really are. An example is Rechman, spelled W-R-E-C-C-E-M-E-N, and is thus very close to the modern wretched. Circeyard, likewise, would have been close to the modern pronunciation of churchyard, because the two C spellings each represented a CH sound, and I stood for the same sound as a modern Y. Norman influence. As the period progressed, so the spelling changed. The Norman scribes listened to the English they heard around them and began to spell it according to the conventions they had previously used for French, such as QU for CU, as in Queen. They brought in the GH sound instead of H in words such as night and enough and CH instead of C in words such as church. They used OU for U as in house, and they began to use C before E instead of S in such words as circle and cell. And because the letter U was written in a very similar way to V, N, and M, words containing a sequence of these letters were difficult to read. They therefore often replaced the U with an O in such cases as come, love, one, and son. K and Z came to be increasingly used, as did J, a visually more distinct form of I. And one pair of letters came to be used in complementary ways, V at the beginning of a word and U in the middle, whether consonant or vowel, as in have. By the beginning of the 15th century, English spelling was a mixture of two systems, Old English and French. The consequences plague English learners still. Middle English sounds. At the same time as new letter shapes and preferences were emerging, there was a continual process of change affecting the way English was pronounced. The result is a degree of complex interaction between the writing and sound system, which has no parallel in the history of English. It's not possible for these pages to provide a systematic description, but they can at least indicate the general character of the pronunciation developments throughout the period. For those interested in the history of spelling especially, it is particularly important time, as this is when many rules and idiosyncrasies of the modern system were introduced. New spelling conventions. Several consonant sounds came to be spelled differently, especially because of French influence. 
For example, Old English SC is gradually replaced by SH or SCH, though some dialects use S, SS, or X. Old English C is replaced by CH or CCH, as in church, and the voiced equivalent previously spelled as CG or GG becomes DG, as in bridge. New conventions for showing long and short vowels also developed. Increasingly, long vowel sounds came to be marked with an extra vowel letter, as in C and book. Short vowels are identified by consonant doubling. In cases where there might otherwise be confusion, as in sitting versus sighting. This convention became available once it was no longer needed to mark the lengthened consonants which had been present in Old English, but lost in Early Middle English. A similar deployment of graphic resources followed the loss of the unstressed vowels that originally distinguished inflectional endings, such as stone. Although the final E sound disappeared, the E spelling remained, and it gradually came to be used to show that the preceding vowel was long. This is the origin of the modern spelling rule about silent E in such words as name and nose. The availability of such a useful and frequent letter also motivated its use in other parts of the system. For example, it marked the consonantal use of U and the affricate use of G, rage versus rag. And it helped distinguish such modern pairs as T's, T-E-A-S-E, and T's, T-E-A-S, and two and toe. New pronunciations. Several sounds altered during the Middle English period. Some took on a different value. Some disappeared altogether. In particular, there was a restructuring of the Old English vowel system. The original diphthongs became pure vowels, and new diphthongs emerged. Some of the new units arose when certain consonants at the end of a syllable came to be pronounced in a vowel-like manner. An example is way, from Old English weg, W-E-G. French loanwords also introduce new diphthongs. Unusual sounds for English and the ancestors of modern words like joy and point. Several of the pure vowels also change their values. For example, in most parts of the country except the north, Old English ah came to be articulated higher at the back of the mouth as is shown by such spelling changes as ban, B-A-N, becoming bone, B-O-N, or swa, becoming so. Northern speech followed its own course in several other areas, too. For example, several of the new diphthongs were far more evident in the south, being replaced by pure vowels in the north. For example, light, L-I-G-H-T versus licht, L-I-C-H-T. An interesting change happened to H. This sound appeared before a consonant at the beginning of many Old English words, such as hring and hennick. It was lost early in the Middle English period. The first sign of the process of h-dropping, or h-dropping, 
which is still with us today, the loss of H before a vowel, began some time later, producing variations in usage which continued into the 16th century. Middle English manuscripts show many examples of an H absent where it should be present. Ad for had, eld for held, but present where it should be absent. Ham for am, his for is, as examples. The influence of spelling and doubtless the prescriptive tradition in schools led to the H forms being later restored in many words in received pronunciation, though not in such romance loans as honor, and thus to the present-day situation where the use of H is socially diagnostic. New Contrasts In a few cases, new contrastive units, phonemes, emerged. The V sound became much more important because of its use in French loanwords, and began to distinguish pairs of words, as it does today. Feel versus veal, for example. Although both F and V sounds are found in Old English, the language did not use them to differentiate words. Similarly, French influence caused S and Z to become contrastive zeal versus seal, for example. And the NG sound at the end of a word also began to distinguish meanings at this time. For example, thing versus thin. In Old English, this sound had always been followed by a G. As in king, for example. However, the G died away at the end of the Old English period, leaving N as the sole distinguishing unit. The study of Middle English phonology is made increasingly difficult and fascinating by the intricate dialect situation. On the one hand, a letter might be given different pronunciations depending on the dialect area in which it appears. An example is the letter Y, which for a while represented an unrounded sound quality in the south and a rounded sound quality in the north. On the other hand, a sound might be given different spellings depending on the dialect area in which it appears. An example here is Old English X, spelled in the middle of words as GH in the south and CH in the north. Finally, we should note the continuing need for analytical caution because spelling was not standardized. Problems of authoritative idiosyncrasy and copyist error abound contributing to both the complex character of the period and the moral fiber of its students. Middle English Grammar What happened to English grammar following the decay of the old English inflectional system? An important preliminary point is to appreciate that, as we would expect from the way language change operates, the loss of inflections was not a sudden nor a universal process. Their disappearance can be traced throughout the whole of the Middle English period, affecting different parts of the country at different times. Moreover, the switch from a synthetic to an analytic type of grammar is not the whole story of Middle English. There were independent changes taking place simultaneously in other parts of the grammatical system, and these also need to be considered. From word ending to word order. None of this gainsays the observation that the most important grammatical development was the establishment of fixed patterns of word order to express the relationship between clause elements. There was already a tendency towards subject-verb-object order in Old English, and this was now consolidated in some constructions and extended to others. 
The Peterborough Chronicle illustration on page 33 shows how the earlier verb final pattern continued to make itself felt, especially when the subject was short, such as a pronoun or a single noun. And other departures from modern word order are apparent in that text. Variations of this kind continue to be in evidence even at the end of the Middle English period, especially when prompted by the demands of the poetic meter, as shown by such Chaucerian examples as inspired hath and so pricketh him nature. Nonetheless, the underlying trend towards SVO is inexorable. The Chronicle uses SVO much more regularly than the West Saxon texts of a few years before. The contrast is especially noticeable in subordinate clauses, and SVO is by far the dominant order in Chaucer. Prepositions became particularly critical when noun endings were lost. For example, where Old English would have said them scripum, with the dative ending on both the words the and ship, Middle English came to say to the sheeps, using a preposition and the common plural ending. The only noun case to survive into modern English was the genitive, the apostrophe s or s apostrophe in writing, a relic which continued to present problems in later centuries. Some of the personal pronouns also kept the old dative form, he versus him, she versus her, etc., the endings of the verb remained close to those of Old English during this period. Most verbs would have had the following forms, illustrated here in Chaucer's English for turnin, turn, and ignoring certain dialectic differences such as the northern use of es instead of eth. Alternative forms can also be found. Comparing the present tense and the past tense, the sentence might be I turn or I turned, Thou turnest, thou turnest est, he turneth, he turned, we turn, we turned. The final simplification to the modern system where we have only turn and turns in the present tense and turned throughout the past took place after the Middle English period. New features of English grammar. The Middle English period is particularly interesting because it shows where several important features of modern English grammar have come from. It also provides a useful perspective for present-day arguments about English usage, as a number of the issues which are condemned as 21st century sloppiness are well in evidence from the earliest times. Middle English vocabulary. The vocabulary of the Peterborough Chronicle is not typical of the Middle English period as a whole. Despite the fact that it was written almost a century after the conquest, there is little sign of the French vocabulary, which was to be the distinctive characteristic of the era. The chronicle vocabulary is still typical of what would have appeared in literary West Saxon, predominantly Germanic, with an, an admixture of Latin and Scandinavian. Several of its words have since dropped from the language. For example, we no longer use pines for cruelties, or Naaman for took. And of the words which are still found today, several have altered meanings. Wonder could mean atrocities as well as marvels, and flesh had the general sense of meat. Such false friends are always a problem in, a, in reading a Middle English text because of their misleading similarity to the modern words. The French Factor 
French influence became increasingly evident in English manuscripts of the 13th century. It has been estimated that some 10,000 French words came into English at that time, many previously borrowed from more distant sources, such as alkali from Arabic. These words were largely due to the mechanisms of law and administration, but they also included words from such fields as medicine, art, and fashion. Many of the new words were quite ordinary, everyday terms. Over 70% were nouns. A large number were abstract terms constructed using such new French affixes as con, trans, pre, ants, shun, ment. And about three quarters of all these French loans are still in the language today. As new words arrived, there were many cases where they duplicated words that had already existed in English from Anglo-Saxon times. In such cases, there were two outcomes. Either one word would supplant the other, or both would coexist but develop slightly different meanings. The first outcome was very common. In most cases, the French word replacing an Old English equivalent. For example, liod gave way to people, willetig to beautiful, and stow to place. Hundreds of Old English words were lost in this way, but at the same time, Old English and French words were both survived with different senses or connotations, such as doom and judgment, hearty and cordial, and house and mansion. Sometimes pairs of words were used, one glossing the other. For Ruth and for pity is a Chaucerian example, and legal terminology often developed coordinations of this kind. Bilingual words lists were compiled as early as the mid-13th century to aid intelligibility between English and French. The role of Latin. French is the most dominant influence on the growth of Middle English vocabulary, but it is by no means the only one. During the 14th and 15th centuries, several thousand words came into the language directly from Latin, though it is often difficult to exclude an arrival route via French. Most of these words were professional and technical terms, belonging to such fields as religion, medicine, law, and literature. They also included many words which were borrowed by a writer in a deliberate attempt to produce a high style. Only a very small number of these Orient terms entered the language, however. For example, meditation, oriental, prolocity. The vast majority died almost as soon as they were born, for example, abusion, sempiturn, and tenebrous. The simultaneous borrowing of French and Latin words led to a highly distinctive feature of modern English vocabulary. Sets of three items all expressed in the same fundamental notion, but differing slightly in meaning or style, such as kingly, royal, and regal, and rise, mount, and ascend. The Old English word is usually the more popular one, with the French word more literary and the Latin word more learned. Other sources. The effects of the Scandinavian invasions also made themselves felt during this period. Although the chief period of borrowing must have been much earlier, relatively few Scandinavian loanwords appear in Old English, and most do not come to be used in manuscripts until well into the 13th century and then mainly in northern areas where Danish settlement was heaviest. A list is given in the section on Old English. 
Several other languages also supplied a sprinkling of new words at this time, though not all survived. Contact with the Low Countries brought pole, head, doton, be foolish, baus, drink deeply, and skipper, a ship's master, resulting from commercial and maritime links with the Dutch. Other loans included cork, a Spanish word, marmalade, Portuguese, sable, Russian, lof, Irish, and many words from Arabic, especially to do with the sciences, for example, saffron, admiral, mattress, algebra, alkali, and zenith. In most cases, the words arrived after they had traveled through other countries and languages, offering entering English via French. A good example is the vocabulary of chess, chess, rook, check, and mate, which came directly from French, but which is ultimately Persian. The effect of all this borrowing on the balance of words in the English lexicon was dramatic. In early Middle English, over 90% of the words, lexical types, were of native English origin. By the end of the Middle English period, this proportion had fallen to around 75%. The Origins of Standard English The variety which we now call Standard English is the result of a combination of influences, the most important of which do not emerge until the Middle English period. There is no direct connection between West Saxon, the written standard of Old English, and the modern standard. The political heart of the country moved from Winchester to London after the conquest, and the major linguistic trends during Middle English increasingly relate to the development of the capital as a social, political, and commercial center. A written standard English began to emerge during the 15th century, and its rise has traditionally been explained with references to the following factors. A regional standardized literary language appeared in the last part of the 14th century based on the dialects of the central Midland countries, especially North Hampshire, Huntingdonshire, and Bedfordshire. This is chiefly found in the large number of Wycliffeite manuscripts which have survived, including sermons, tracts, prayers, poems, and the different versions of the Wycliffe Bible, as well as several secular works. The Lollards spread this variety widely into even southwest England, thus increasing its status as a standard. In the long term, it was unable to compete with the quantity of material emanating from the capital, but its central Midlands origins are nonetheless noteworthy. The growth of a standard from the London area can be seen by the mid-14th century. Although London was very much a dialectical hybrid, with the city influenced by the Essex dialect and Westminster, some distance further west, showing the influence of Middlesex. Patterns of standardization gradually appear. There is a small group of manuscripts written prior to 1370, which are noted for their uniformity in spelling. A later and much larger group of diverse manuscripts include the work of Chaucer and Langland. These texts, in their different ways, represent London English of around 1400, but the amount of variation they display suggests that they cannot be called a standard in any strict sense. <clears throat> Not even Chaucer's writing, traditionally thought to be a precursor of modern standard English, exercised a specific influence on the form this standard took. 
nor is it likely that poetic usage would ever influence general usage in any real way. It can hardly be doubted, though, that Chaucer's literary standing would have greatly added to the prestige associated with written language in the London dialect. The most significant factor must have been the emergence of London as the political and commercial centre of the country. In particular, the influence of the administrative offices of the London Chancery was important, especially after circa 1430. Vast amounts of manuscript copying took place within the London area, and standards of practice emerged among the Chancery scribes. These practices interacted with those used by other groups of London scriveners, and spelling slowly became increasingly standardized, eventually affecting all kinds of material, including literary texts. The directions of influence were multiple and complex, and are still not entirely understood. But when Caxton was set up as press in Westminster and chose local London speech as his norm, the lasting influence of his scrivening neighbors was assured. These observations add up to the claim that the standard language was the result of an accumulation of influences from different kinds of writing, as well as an accommodation to dialects from different parts of the country, especially the Central Midlands area. That the Central area could exercise such influence is suggested by a number of contemporary comments, as well as, as by deductions based on social history. John of Trevisia, translating Higdon's Polychronicon, circa 1387, identifies its function as a communication bridge between north and south. For men of the east with men of the west, as it were under the same party of Huni, accordeth more in soneth of the speches pronunciation, than men of the north with men of the south. Therefore it is that Mercians, that beef men of Middle England, as it were partners of the Endis, understoodeth better the side languages, northern and southern, than northern and southern understoodeth either other. By way of social considerations, we have evidence of a marked population shift in the 14th century. In the earlier part of that century, immigration to the London area was highest in the, from the East Midlands counties of Norfolk, Essex, and Hertfordshire. But it later increased dramatically from such central Midlands counties as Leicestershire, Northamptonshire, and Bedfordshire. As a result, the London dialect became increasingly exposed to many of the linguistic features of Midland writing. These observations bring a fresh perspective to the, to the traditional map of Middle English dialects, where no recognition is given to the Central Midlands area, and where, where special attention is paid to the East Midlands triangle bounded by London, Cambridge, and on the borders with Southern Oxford an area of high population, containing the main social and political centre and the main seats of learning. This was a wealthy agricultural region and the centre of the growing wool trade. Its role in promoting the importance of the southeast in the Middle Ages is clear. However, its linguistic influence was far less important than that of the area further west. The final factor in the emergence of a southern literary standard was the development of printing, 
This resulted in the spread of a single norm over most of the country, so much so that during the early 16th century, it becomes increasingly difficult to determine on internal linguistic grounds the dialect in which a literary work is written, apart from the northern dialect, such as Scots, which retained their written identity longer. People now begin to make value judgments about other dialects. In the Townley plays, Mac the sheep stealer masquerades as a person of importance and adopts a southern accent. John of Travisia comments that northern speech is sharp, slighting, and fronting and unshapen, shrill, cutting, grating, and ill-formed. Giving as one of the reasons that northerners live far away from the court. And in the art of English poesy, attributed to George Puttenham circa 1520-1590, the aspiring poet is advised to use the usual speech of the court and that of London and the shires lying about London within nine miles and not much above. There was never to be total uniformity, but the forerunner of standard English undoubtedly existed by the end of the 15th century. That brings us to the end of today's reading. Don't forget to check out the additional resources, especially the accompanying website for the text at cambridge.org slash crystal. Thanks for listening to this episode of the DadCast. Remember to go back and look at the actual text because there's often important images or graphs or charts that you need to look at to really understand the content of this reading. The DadCast is a two dogs and a stick production. Don't forget, every day is a learning day.